From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The Coalition's decision to oppose the voice to Parliament has put its moderate members in difficult situations. Some moderates are outspoken yes advocates, while others are trying to keep low profiles. Bridget Archer, the Liberal MP for Bass in Tasmania, is strongly and actively urging a yes vote. Archer, however, is speaking out a lot more widely than simply on The Voice. She's talking on a range of issues as she critiques the Liberal Party and calls for change. She's become one of the main Liberals pushing for extensive reform in a party that's electorally on the ropes, out of office everywhere except in Archer's home state of Tasmania. Bridget Archer joins us today. Bridget Archer, since you were elected in 2019, you've crossed the floor to vote against your colleagues on 27 occasions. These have included before the election voting to push for a debate on an anti-corruption commission, and more recently you supported Labor on climate change legislation and its censure of Scott Morrison over his multi-ministries. Have you had a lot of blowback from your colleagues for these stands, and do you get a, a good deal of cold shouldering? Some. I think it's fair to say it's uncomfortable sometimes for colleagues. They don't like it. I think we have this idea of discipline and and unity, which is important. But I think that uh, we also have to uh, be speaking to our electorates. And so for me, those decisions have always been about what do I think is in the best interests of my community. But sometimes, yeah, it does put you in opposition with people. It's not personal. And I think it's the nature of politics. You know, there's 151 of us here. We come from all corners of the country and we represent different electorates. So sometimes we're going to disagree and I would argue that's historically been the strength of the Liberal Party that we can respectfully disagree. So do they confront you directly or do they just avoid you? How does it manifest itself? Yeah, you know, I've got some good friends uh, here and I maintain good relationships with them but certainly I've noticed there are some colleagues who just avoid me. Now, you mentioned your electorate. What feedback do you get from your electorate on, on this whole question of uh, sometimes defying your party? Yeah, uh, mixed, you know, but generally uh, positive. You know, if I get negative feedback, it is sometimes from uh, Liberal Party uh, members or Conservative voters who, you know, think that you should toe the line or that you should be, you know, there's this idea that if you have um, a divergent view that you're not a team player, whereas I, I don't think that that is the case um, and generally that's the conversation I have with them, that it is possible to be part of a team and to have differences of opinion sometimes and that it's my job to represent to the best of my ability everybody in the electorate, even the people who don't or didn't vote for you, I guess. So do you think that your independent stance on issues helps you or hinders you in your electorate when, when you put it in net terms? Look, I think probably it helps me, and I think that was borne out um, at the last election, particularly given the results across the country. You know, um, Bass, our most marginal seat, I think, at the last election, uh, one that we hadn't held for about 30 years, but actually nobody had held for about 20 years. Um, you know, the ejector seat, if you like, of, of politics. And I mean, I think it is extraordinary in a way um, and and somewhat telling to the question you're asking that we, we kept Bass, but we lost 
Kuyong and Curtin and Wentworth and, you know, those sort of what had been considered safer um, seats, you know. So I think that speaks to to the question you're asking in some ways that, yes, that probably assisted. I recall in opposition when you took a, a strong and uh, against the Liberal grain stand on getting a debate on the anti-corruption commission or trying to, you were hauled into Scott Morrison's office and obviously uh, put under pressure there. I just wondered now, how are your relations with Peter Dutton? Does he hear your concerns even if he doesn't agree with them? Yeah, I have a good relationship with Peter Dutton. I think, you know, he communicates with me, his office uh, communicates with me and likewise with him, you know, we have a, a mutual respect, I think, even when we don't agree on issues. And he's happy to go to Bass? Yeah, he's happy to, to come to Bass. He's been to Bass. In a recent Sydney Morning Herald profile of you, you said the Liberal Party in its current form is unelectable and in need of a revolution. So let's just unpack these. Firstly, what are the reasons the Liberal Party is unelectable? Look, I think in many ways, and I think this was again borne out in the 2022 election with the rise of community independence, you know, where people, particularly in some of those metropolitan seats, are not feeling that the party is representing their views anymore. Uh, And we see in sort of regional areas that is not necessarily the case. And we've seen with the coalition, of course, the nationals holding the seats that they had, but they don't hold any metropolitan seats either. So, you know, I think that's the great challenge for us is to get back to what I think was the strength of the Liberal Party at one stage, which is the ability to speak across the country, to talk to middle Australia, if you like. Uh, And I think that we've lost our way in that. And um, I think that was borne out uh, in the election results and again in the Aston by-election. And we have to do some work uh, to, to get back to that, I think, and to be able to be speaking to Australians in those seats that we have lost. So you're saying that in the regions it's still resonating? Well, I think that there's some evidence to um, to bear that out in terms of the seats that we've held compared to the seats we've lost and the fact that the Nationals have hung on, you know, successfully in the seats that they hold. So, you know, I think that there's some evidence uh, for that, but obviously uh, we have, we've lost a swathe of seats that were once... Um, you know, considered safe liberal seats. Uh, And obviously our policies or our views or a combination of those things is not resonating uh, in those communities. So this goes to the revolution and the challenge of straddling the the regional outer suburban seats and the uh, urban liberal seats, the ones that have been lost. What needs to be done in precise terms? I think there's a range of things. Uh, I think that there needs to be obvious daylight between the the partners of the coalition. You know, the coalition has been important and, you know, our coalition colleagues are important and I'm not saying that we should dissolve the coalition, but I think we need to have a look at what it looks like and make sure that, that the Liberals have a strong identity of their own and I think in part that is what's been lost that and I see it in correspondence from people increasingly that will write to me or email me or on social media uh, that people will refer to the LNP as as in the just the everyday sort of language Uh, and it's not an animal that exists outside of Queensland but it has sort of entered the 
the lexicon in a way of people um, and that says to me that people are not seeing daylight between the parties and you know I heard uh, David Littleproud uh, saying in the media in the last few days well we're two sovereign parties and yes we should be and sometimes we need to come together as a coalition uh, and we have some values that unite us but we also have an identity of our own and I think that the liberal identity has become uh, lost in a way uh, and there's not that daylight between us and uh, and the nationals and then I think there are policies and policy positions again if you're going to be talking to people across the country I think we need to be thinking about what are some of those policies that are going to resonate with the metropolitan voters that we we have lost. What are some examples of those policies? Look, I think there's a whole sort of suite of things and we've talked about things like, you know, and you'll hear many commentators talk about things like home ownership or, uh, you know, rental affordability even, which I think is, we, we have historically talked a lot about home ownership, but we don't focus so much on rental affordability, which might be something that would certainly, uh, I think, be front of mind for many people in those metropolitan areas and for younger people as well who have also deserted us in droves. Uh, so that, that I think, is, is one example. And then, you know, I think there are some of those issues also um, cut across, you know, regional and metropolitan areas. But, you know, I think it is really more about how the identity of the party is constructed. If it's seen as just a party for only the regions, you know, I think that's where we're going to to continue to struggle. Obviously, the party lost a a lot of moderates in the election when the Teals stormed in. But even taking that into account, it does seem to me that the remaining moderates have been, as a group, pretty weak since the election. They're not, you're an exception, but they're not really speaking out, even internally, it seems, to say what's wrong with the party to try to reshape policy? Should they be doing more? Yes, I think it's um, a bit frustrating for me sometimes. That I feel that I know that there are other people who share my views on some things, but they they don't speak up, which I think sometimes does leave me sort of hanging there as this rogue person, when I know that that's not necessarily the case. And even in the last few days, talking about the coalition, you know, the Liberals and the Nationals, you know, I see, um, you know, unnamed senior Liberals saying that they might agree with me. Well, it's a little bit frustrating that they perhaps might be a little bit more vocal about that and not helpful, I guess, in that respect. But I also think it really goes to the heart of some of the reasons why those colleagues did lose their seats at the last election and why we have seen a rise of the Teals, the community independents, is I think in those seats that in many cases people were wanting to vote for Liberals, you know, and they were looking around to get a, to have a reason to vote for Liberals and they were coming up empty-handed because you would hear, um, and even in my seat, and I know this was happening around the country, you know, uh, there was this idea that, well, what's the point of uh, you because, you know, you're voting all of the time with Barnaby Joyce? And that, that, is, that was the campaign uh, messaging, which feeds into that idea that I was saying that people are not seeing the daylight between. And when those voters are looking around and they're not finding the Liberal that they think is going to um, represent their views, they weren't looking to the Labor Party either or they weren't looking to the Greens. They were looking for something else. And I think... You know, other commentators have probably made the point that in some cases those community independents may once have sat within uh, the Liberal Party, but they 
they don't see themselves there anymore, uh, which I think goes to the problem. Well, why are your moderate colleagues so silent? Are they intimidated? What's the reason? Do they talk to you about this? No, I mean, my sense is that um, much of it is to do with this idea of discipline and unity and that if you speak out of turn or you speak your mind that you're ill-disciplined or disunified. I don't believe that's true. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, uh, you have an obligation if you feel that your team is sort of sleepwalking off a cliff, that you probably should say something rather than just be disciplined and unified and um, follow them off. That That's my opinion. Uh, but I think it is this idea that of discipline and unity and and in some ways uh you know it's borne out by my example in in as much as and and people you know I guess uh that have taken this road before me they haven't probably fared overly well in terms of their career trajectory um and uh you know I guess by nature a lot of the people here have got ambitions and um personal ambitions as well. But you do feel the party's walking off a cliff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just in terms of role models, do you have any heroes, liberal heroes, who've, you know, stood out against the crowd even when it's been unpopular? Uh, you know, I think I look, um, you know, I look to the to the party of old, Ross, Russell Broadbent, you know, um, back in the here. day. Yeah, that's right. And um, Judy Moylan, um, Petro Giorgio, you know, I think uh, were all uh, people who certainly uh, took, the, took those principled stands on issues back then. But it has been so rare um, since, you know, I think that... Uh, and, and I believe it is a strength of our party. It's one of the reasons that... Uh, I felt that the Liberal Party was a, a more natural fit for me was that the, the very notion of sort of independent thought and um, being able to to take decisions that you think are uh, in the best interests of your constituency, not just in the best interests of the party. And, and I also hold the view that actually that is in the best interests of the party because um, as backbenchers certainly in the parliament, you know, you've got one job to get re-elected. It, I think if you can represent your constituency and they think that you have done that well, then they're likely to re-elect you. That is in the party's interest. So I don't see those two things as incompatible, but I think it's the way that we um, we look at it. We don't want to see um, disunity. We don't want to see, you know, we don't want a, an idea that there's somehow um, division. But I think we need to reframe how we look at that and say, well, actually, we're all just doing our our job speaking to the people that have sent us here. Let's talk about The Voice. How do you think the campaign for Yes is going? Look, I think it's going to be uh, a, a long road. It feels like it's um, already been quite a long uh, process, a long journey, uh, and I think it has been quite contested and challenging, I think, in some ways already. Uh, but I think that's the nature of referenda generally, that you've got to have a majority of Australians in a majority of states. We know it's a big hill to climb. Uh, balancing all of that, I think that the Yes campaign is going well, as well as probably could be expected. I'll be interested to see whether the tone of things changes a little bit now that it's 
um, sort of, well, certainly out of the House of Representatives, the referendum um, bill and whether that allows people then to maybe have politicians stop talking about it so much and actually let um, Australians have their say, which ultimately I think is uh, the most important thing, that we are going to have a referendum and all Australians are going to have their say. But generally I feel I get very similar uh, perspective on the ground to what I felt during the same-sex marriage plebiscite, for example, that a lot of people aren't really thinking about it quite yet as well. They've got other things that they're thinking about, other considerations, other things going on, so they haven't quite switched on yet. Some people are really a little bit ambivalent, but I think we'll possibly say, well, it doesn't really affect me, but it seems fair. I think there's that sort of um, mood as well. And then I think you have loud voices on on both sides. But I think that there's still quite a lot of people who are just um, not really exp- expressing a view at the moment. What about your own electorate? Do you think that uh, there's a majority yes there? I think there is, and I I think that Tasmania will, you know, I'd probably be a strong um, yes state. That's my my sense. But um, uh, also there will also be um, people that have alternative views, and I think it's interesting to note, um, and it's probably true around the country. But you know, even within Tasmania, within uh, Aboriginal communities. There's divergent views. There are different views. Some people are not convinced or, um, you know, even within the kind of no camp, the reasons for people saying no or thinking no are not homogenous either. So um, some people are like, no, we don't want to change the constitution. Other people will say, well, I don't really trust that that's going to do what we need it to do or I want it to go further. You know, I want to see treaty... So I think that we've still got a long way to go and, and I think there's still, you know, a softness in uh, both both sides. Are you working closely with other Liberal Yes supporters such as Julian Lisa? Yeah, we certainly communicate. You know, it has been reported and um, won't be surprising that there will be a sort of, you know, Liberals for Yes campaigns around the the country as well. And my view is that I support the Yes campaign. I'm keen to directly campaign for a Yes vote. But I also feel that that should be led in a way by grassroots and community uh, level uh, voices, not by politicians. So, you know, I will I will be available to do whatever I can to help and assist. uh, But I'm keen to be led by those groups rather than impose my opinion or style on them. If the referendum goes down, what do you think the consequences will be in general terms and how much will the Liberals be blamed? Look, I think it's difficult to tell, you know, where blame might lie if that were to occur. I don't think it would be helpful, obviously, if it were to be lost or to be narrowly lost, particularly. But I think the consequences are, you know, something that we should all be mindful of as well, because I think that it's a long process to get to here. Uh, Already, I think we're seeing a divisive type of commentary from those, you know, loud voices. Uh, And people, it's... 
you know, I think like we saw with same-sex uh, marriage, it sort of hurts people a little bit on the way through as well. And even if you end up with a positive result at the end of that, I think there will still be some hurt to overcome. Uh, so, you know, whether it is won or lost, I don't think that will be the end of the story. And I think there'll actually be, there needs to be a plan, in my view, for how to, um, you know, how to help and assist people I think following the process and and acknowledge that it has been and it will be harmful and damaging to some people just to get to whatever the answer is and if it's a if it's a no that might be um, harder Uh, but I think even if it's a yes I still think that people will feel a bit bruised um, just from the journey to get there. Now, before we finish, I have to ask you about the Tasmanian Liberal government's backing with big dollars of that planned football stadium. The issue caused a couple of Liberals, state Liberals, to defect to the crossbench. What's your attitude? Uh, look, I'm on the record as not being um, supportive of the stadium. Uh, in 2019, in the 2019 election campaign, the Federal Labor pledged to put $25 million into uh, AFL infrastructure in Hobart. And I campaigned directly on putting $25 million into health in the north instead. So if nothing else, it would be quite an act of hypocrisy for me to walk back from that when you've put a couple of zeros on the end of the of the numbers now. So I, um, I think it is about priorities and I think it's also about communication. I think that... Tasmanians don't understand and this is not necessarily a failure of the policy and I think that there is an argument that the government is trying to do something ambitious and is trying to do something that's going to be beneficial into the future for the state and I'm not unpersuaded by that but I think that Tasmanians are unpersuaded by that when they still have queues for elective surgery We have people living in poverty coming into winter now, uh, living in tents. I I have never seen the level of disadvantage in my um, city, in Launceston, that I've seen in the last 12 months. Emergency service providers saying that they've had people coming to their door that they've never seen before, working people, living in tents. Um, So I think that Tasmanians don't understand why um, the stadium, a third stadium, might be a priority and you know the federal government has tried to spin that a little bit as as an urban renewal project it's a stadium and um, we've got a couple of other stadiums and we want a an AFL team you know Tasmania desperate for its own AFL team and I think Tasmanians feel a little bit like they've been held to ransom well if you want your team you have to take this stadium that you don't don't really want and um you know, I think other commentators have um, suggested that it's a little bit bread and circuses. Finally, there's been speculation that you might leave the Liberals and become one of those community independents. How possible is that? Look, it's not certainly not my preference. Um, I care about the Liberal Party. I um, joined the Liberal Party because I felt that those were the values that most closely aligned with me and uh, you know I also have a broader view around democracy and the importance of having uh, you know credible parties of government um, both governments and um, and oppositions and I think that's actually fundamental to democracy. I think community independents are great and I think they're an important part of a, a democracy landscape but they 
are not a party of government and I personally am not sure I'd want 151 independents. I think that would be quite quite chaotic. So I think from that point alone, um, it's worth the fight. You know, it's worth fighting for having a party that we can be proud of, a party that Australians can be proud of and one that even in opposition can hold a government to account. And we should all care about that, whatever our political colours are, because it's not good for democracy to have a government that is essentially going unchallenged as well. It's fundamental that we have a credible opposition. And so I think the Liberal Party has been a formidable force in the past. I think it can be again, but I think we have to you know, have some difficult conversations about what that looks like and how we achieve that and be prepared to, you know, I think people have to be prepared to make some compromises. So there's no chance you'd defect to the crossbench or no, a not, small chance? Not willingly, um, but, you know, uh, I, would, I will be seeking pre-selection uh, as the endorsed Liberal candidate for the next election. But ultimately, uh, whether that happens is in the hands of, you know, my party members, my branch members. If they made a different decision, then I would have a think about whether I made a different decision. But it is in no way in my thinking that I'm going to say, no, I'm going to um, go to the to the crossbench. I'm going to keep fighting for the future of the Liberal Party. So while there is some dissent about you uh, in your branches, uh Do you think your pre-selection is safe? Um, Look, I'm confident that I have the majority support of members in my electorate. They've pre-selected me several times now already. Um, I'm exactly the same person I was when I was pre-selected for the state election in 2018. Uh, Nobody should be surprised by any of the actions that I have taken in relation to these uh, things because I... I took similar stances um, before, you know, when I was on the council. So I don't think people have got anything that wasn't written on the on the box. Uh, And they've pre-selected me a couple of times. So, you know, I have confidence, but ultimately I also have respect that that is the democratic process of the party. And it is a decision for grassroots rank and file members um, to make. And, you know, I respect I respect that. But um, I certainly Uh, will be putting myself forward for Liberal pre-selection again. Bridget Archer, thank you for taking time in this busy parliamentary week to talk with the Conversations podcast. That's all for today. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevear. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes.